Since time immemorial, indigenous people have lived, traveled, and traded in the Puget Sound region. The Donation Land Act of 1850 to encourage westward expansion allowed American settlers to claim these traditional native lands. The explosion of immigration into the region that followed forced the U.S. government into a fraught treaty-making process with local tribes. The original terms of the Medicine Creek Treaty were inadequate and ultimately unaccepted by tribal leaders resulting in war. The Indigenous Voices podcast is an extension of the award-winning Puget Sound Treaty War Panel series and Fort Nisqually Living History Museum. The podcast advances tribal voices in the telling of Puget Sound history and shares tribal knowledge and expertise with wider audiences. Billy Frank Jr. Nisqually Wildlife Refuge formerly Nisqually National Wildlife Refuge, was established in 1974 as part of the National Park Service Registry of National Landmarks. The refuge is also the site of the 1854 Medicine Creek Treaty signing. In Episode 9, we visit the refuge and ask panelists to describe the landscape, share stories related to the treaty signing, and discuss the importance of this land to tribal people. Billy Frank Jr. was known for his activism during the Second Treaty War, also known as the Fishing Wars. Frank organized fissions, which led to the Bolt Decision of 1974, a federal court case that reaffirmed tribal fishing rights. Frank was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2015. In 2021, Washington Governor Jay Inslee signed legislation to honor Frank with a statue in the National Statuary Hall in D.C., Once complete, the statue will replace that of Marcus Whitman, an early missionary to the region. My name is Warren King George with the Muckleshoot Indian Tribe. Nancy Bullchild, Director of Nisqually Archives in Tippo, Nisqually Elder, Nisqually Member. So currently we're at the Billy Frank Jr. Refuge, which was formerly the Nisqually Refuge site in Olympia, Washington. Back in the day, I would imagine this because everything flowed freely. It was really a gathering place. So like when you look out here at the flats, I guess they're called, um, you know, a lot of the old Indians used to say, when the tide was out, the table was set. And that was your time to gather. And it wasn't just shellfish. Um, Looking at this place, you know, I'm seeing all the plants, like the the cattail, the berries, the tribal diet was fowl, you know, duck and all that, which I don't eat. But you can see how it attracted everything. You know, everything was here. Um, The camping was here. You can only imagine in the treaty, because this wasn't diked and made how it is now, you know, the, the canoes, horses, everything, you know, were able to come into this spot during. So it was a gathering spot of, for various reasons, for tribes. So there was trading, there was socializing. And like I said before, with canoes, they weren't just used for transportation. You know, it was used for you to go 
socialize. It was used for events, you know, the potlatches and like we talked in previous about the treaty, you know, that's kind of what tribes expected. All the tribes that came here for that treaty signing was expecting like a potlatch in this area because that's what they were used to. So, you know, they came up, came in on canoes and horses and, you know, whatever, however they were available. I, cause I think there was buggies too, horse and buggies. So I think Stevens came in on the, a boat, you know, so, yeah. yeah. Historically and traditionally, the one of the properties that that I'm aware of of, of the Nisqually River and its resources, uh, historically that there's uh, the fish runs in Nisqually typically run late. They run later. So what I'm when the Green River run and the White River fish run and the Black River runs were done. Or, and the salmon have passed and already gone upstream, upriver to spawn. This river system, historically, the the salmon runs were much later. And so, if we, if if the if the members, um, if the villagers on the White River or Green River missed their fish run for some reason, they could always come to river systems like the Nisqually to to supplement to gather to gather their winter supplies, or they could come here and trade, or you know, claim, you know, do that, uh, uh, you know, we're going to reach out to our extended family, to our relatives to the south and, and see if we can't go and get our winter supply of dried salmon. Uh, this is where we would come. Yeah, that's, and that's what comes to mind, uh, you know, historically and traditionally. Um, you've got the McAllister Creek right behind you. Uh, that, you know, that's a, a it's always been historically been a, a wonderful resource for spring chinook. It still is, but I know that uh, in my generation, I've all, my fathers uh, has always told me my my buddies, my fishing buddies, have always said McAllister Creek is a great creek, great tributary for spring chinook. Yeah, that's where that's where you go to go catch them. And so, what it means to me, what what traveling here for that event. Uh, would, would simply would would be well worth the, the trip, uh, considering you know what we know now, of course, right? The impacts of coming here versus not coming here. You know, you got to question whether or not Muckleshoot would even exist, because that's where the that's why the war was. That's what what created that the disagreements. You know, the the, the original Nisqually res reservation was. You know, it's not where it was today. That the original reservation was wouldn't support land, wouldn't support life. So, uh, thankfully, you know those those warriors, those representatives were wise enough to force the hand of of Governor Stevens and the the militia, force their hand to, in a sense, to said this is not going to work. We we rely on our our salmon. We're salmon people. We're we're water people, and you know, those original reservation locations were not going to work, or not enough in, in Muckleshoot's case. My father used to tell this story to us as kids, and, and it's one of my favorites, because there's an individual, uh, a character involved that has strong ties to Muckleshoot. 
And the, the gentleman's name was Slugia uh, Coquilton, I believe is the name. He was the one who was considered a traitor and was was uh, responsible for Leshai's capture. And Leshai had a great following because he, had a, he was a great character and he possessed the, the, the skills to be a, a warrior and a leader and, and someone that you would like, you would, uh, you would, you want as an ally. Well, one of Leshai's uh, right-hand men, right-hand men was uh, Wahilut, and he he took uh, Slugia and, and invited him to his camp, and he directed his wife to asked his wife to prepare a, a salmon dinner for the guest of honor for. Slugia and Wahilut was sitting around the fire enjoying his dinner with his with his nephew if I recall that was his nephew and said is that a good fish nephew are you enjoying your dinner oh yes uncle I'm enjoying my dinner this is delicious he said well good because it's going to be your last and Wahilut shot him for betraying that good man, that great man, that good warrior, Lashai. And that's what I, the story that I, when I cross this and come, when I'm going south on I-5 and I used to see the tree there, the Medicine, Medicine Creek, the treaty tree. And, and that story resonates with me whenever I see, when I saw that tree. It was, you know, in my dad, that, and, he, so he drilled it into us. You know, we we heard that story so many times, and, and you know, of course, it would. You know, there were slight variations every time, but it, it was a good story, and it was a good lesson, good point about you know about family and the importance of family and the importance of friendship and you know what you don't do to your fellow, you know, to your allies and to your people that you stood shoulder to shoulder with. One of my thoughts with um, this place is, you know, I try to tell the younger generation, the next generation at Nisqually, is, is you guys don't realize this is exclusive to Nisqually tribe, the, the treaty tree in this area. I says, we weren't the only ones that signed it, but I said, this is where they came. I said, that's a lot of history that you have, you should take ownership to that, you know, you should be proud of. And you should know that history. And we do get a lot of uh, even tribal leaders now, you know, that will say, we didn't know about the Puget Sound Treaty Wars. We knew about the Battle of Little, Little Bighorn, but we didn't know this. So, you know, it's important when you talk about place that they understand that treaty tree is on your territory and Medicine Creek was signed here. You should own that and then you know the history of it so that you can talk about it because they still refer to these stories that are drilled into you, you know, because I, I experienced that too when you know, elders would tell me, I was like, I know this story. And then I'm like, oh, got it. That's oral history because you're supposed to remember that, you know. So, you know, you really need to get this history out and tell these stories and speak up about it because your elders told you these stories and now you need to pass them on, you know, so that they will be remembered. You know, there's different versions. You know, I'm always saying everything is open to interpretation. But the biggest controversy was, was that it, displaced you know the, the Squally tribal people plus all the other tribes you know according to that treaty um, you know we've always talked about Stevens had his 
his list, you know, his to-do list of what he was supposed to do when he came out here. He was very smart enough to know, you know, the layout. He was smart enough to know these people that he hired. So there was no question in his mind of what he was trying to do. They used um, tribal people for work. They called it an apprenticeship. But in our mind, it was like getting them up there to do the work, to clear their land, to make it for what they wanted to use it for. When they knew all along, you know, and it gets back to the colonizing, when they knew all along, you know, the tribal people needed the river. I mean, you could sit in this place and look just, mm -hmm. just how it makes everything available. You know, you don't have to go far to get whatever your needs to be taken care of. So it was a very important spot. And, you know, that was the thing with Leshai. He knew that. But with Stevens, that wasn't what he was looking for, you know, because he did, you know, he was supposed to come out, survey for the railroad. He had other, you know, and he just wanted to move up the ladder. Like my son Curtis here had said, you asked that question, what if, if he would have befriended Leshai? How would that have turned out? You know, and he never asked that. He just was determined to get rid of him because he knew he was going to oppose him. He opposed him right from the beginning. And so what are you going to do? You know, you want him out of the way because he probably had the influence to gather again if he wanted to. You know, and you look at a lot of the journals of non-tribal people and they talk about that. You know, he knew English, he, you know, these other people knew, which always gets me when looking up things, is a lot of these settlers, a lot of these other government people knew the language. They knew Lashutsi. So why was Stevens picking Chinook to do this, this treaty? You know, it made no sense. You know, now you look back at it and see these people lived with each other. You know, Leshai lived among the settlers. They knew that and a lot of those, they talk about even their children learned the language. So why was there this big issue about Chinook jargon that was supposed to be interpretive for other tribes when you knew in other tribes, they had the same thing. They knew some of the English to understand. Um, a lot of them knew the Lashutsi to talk to these people and, you know, live among them and not fear them. So, you know, there was just, it was his perspective and it was his only, you know. One of the things I learned about Stevens was that, you know, and my mom has said it before, he, he, was, he was smart enough to know that, and it's not, it, you know, it's proven that Leshai had a lot more influence over this area than, than Stevens did at the time. And Leshai had a lot of influence on non-Native people. You know, they were looking for him for, for, for answers. And so I think Stevens seen that and kind of had a jealous you know, overtone to his, what, what's, what went on here. So. Lesh, I had a lot more influence here in this area. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure he could have been governor if he wanted to, but, you know, at the time there was, there was no way that would have happened, you know, having a native governor. You know, to tribes living off of this land that provided everything was sacred, you know, so there wasn't, like we talked about, there wasn't the ownership part of it ever in their mind. It was just this provided, you know, for you to, to, to sustain life. And that's a big sacred part of tribes, you know, life, you know, to make sure their people survive, make sure, you know, they have all of their needs met, you know, and that so all of these places that the tribes camped, gathered, fished, you know, they were all sacred to them. Well, one of my thoughts, too, when we were coming out here was, and I remember Brandon from Puyallup stating that, like, when he would go out to um, a site, 
you know, and he would get artifacts, you know, he, he talked about, you know, my ancestors probably held these artifacts. That's kind of the way it is up here. When you're looking about the treaty, it's like you're thinking, wow, our ancestors were out here for all of us, you know, these tribes that all were involved with this treaty. You're walking on ground that, you know, our ancestors were here at one time and you feel it. You could go to these places and you feel it, you know, it's like you see why they loved it. You see why they went every year. I mean, to think going to Mount Rainier, you know, that was like a week, two weeks trip, you know, just to get there. And you're like, why would you do that? But you see the reason for like, even when we go huckleberry picking, I'm like, okay, now I remember why we come here. You know, it is that you just have this feeling of peace and, you know, and so you can understand just that thing of, you know, our ancestors are here watching and, you know, they were once a part of this, you know, in that history of the, the treaty, especially when they all came together. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us monthly as we continue the conversation among diverse communities impacted by the treaty war and its aftermath. To learn more about the Puget Sound Treaty War, visit our tribal partner websites and fortnessqually.org, where you can watch our four-part panel series on the conflict. This podcast is generously supported by the Tacoma Historic Preservation Office and the Tacoma Arts Commission. Music by Vincent Johnson, Nooksack Lummy, and Nishani Johnson, Jamestown Sklalem Lummy. Lummy.